Welcome to the HPG Bible Talks podcast, where we do simple, focused reading and discussion from God's Word, the Bible. I'm Stephen. And I'm Chase. We are Bible teachers in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and we're excited to get into the Word and to share it with others. All right, welcome back to our New Testament overview on the podcast, and today we are looking at the letter from Paul to the Colossians, as well as the letter of Paul to Philemon, one of the little one-chapter letters in the New Testament. And uh, we put these two together because when you look at the background of these letters, they very likely go together. Um, And so we decided after doing Ephesians last week, kind of pair these two together um, as we look at them. Because Colossians and Ephesians have a lot in common. If you read those two letters, you're like, whoa, like a lot of the same material. Now, there's some significant differences. But um, if you're just reading the two letters together, you're like, man, Paul had a lot of the same stuff on his mind when he's writing to these churches. Yeah, and so when we get into the letter that Paul writes to Philemon, it'll serve as a bridge because from here on for the next several episodes, we're going to be looking at Paul's letters to individuals. Uh, This just kind of works out perfectly where you see it delivered by the same person to the church, but also to this one person. So it's really neat how that worked out. Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, what's interesting is, you know, we talked last week about Ephesus and how Paul spent longer in Ephesus than any other place that we know of. Uh, With Colossians, it's the exact opposite. Uh, He had never been to Colossae. Um, It says in Colossians 2 and verse 1 that he, you know, knows about the struggle that they have and um, those in Laodicea. And he says, and all who have not seen me face to face. Mm -hmm. So Paul had never been to this church. Now he had heard a lot about them. Heard yeah. about their faith. He mentions in chapter 1, verse 4, um, that he'd heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and the love for all the saints. So it's not that he doesn't know anybody there. He's going to have a lengthy greeting section at the end. Kind of like in Rome. You know, he'd never been to Rome, but there's a lengthy greeting section there. So it's not that he has no connections with Colossae. Uh, but it does say that um, he's never been there. He really wants to go there. Um, but he's writing to them. From prison. And I think it's a cool thing to see because, you know, Paul overwhelmingly does a lot of the work that we read about in the New Testament. And we need to realize that God had a lot of other workers working in those days. And a lot of different work was being done in different areas that Paul never went into or rarely visited in. Um, And so this is one of those regions that, that Paul hasn't been to quite yet, very similar to how he hadn't been to Rome yet at the time that he wrote the letter to the Romans that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But this region that we're talking about is actually just a little over 100 miles uh, to the right, um, so to the east of Ephesus. And so Paul had spent three years there. And it's also kind of known as the the Phrygia area on that side of what was then called Asia. And on the day of Pentecost, uh, among the 16 different nations that were there when Peter and the 11 apostles preach were people from Phrygia, that that very same area. And in Acts 18, we also know that Paul had done a little bit of preaching in that area, but not in a Colossian region. I say all that to say people likely knew who Paul was. They had probably talked to someone who had heard Paul speak. And so uh, he knows the brethren there, but just hasn't made the trip there yet. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of cool to think about these connections and, again, where um, all this comes together. We'll see in just a little bit that uh, Philemon uh, likely was a member of the church there in Colossae, along with Onesimus, uh, his servant. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit when we 
transition yeah. over to the letter to Philemon. But again, it's just cool to see when you put together the New Testament letters how they fit together yeah. and how, uh, how they work. It's been very cool. Well, and also we'll toward the end of Colossians see what Paul's intentions for these letters were outside of the only congregation you know that it's addressed to. Um, and so we'll talk more about that as well. Yeah. So Colossians has an overall outline uh, that's very similar to Ephesians. Uh, the first two chapters are largely dealing with concepts and teachings about Jesus and what God has done for us through Jesus. And chapters 3 and 4 ha- are more focused on application and on how we ought to live because of what God has done for us. And so again, just like Ephesians 1 through 3 and then 4 through 6 are the two sections corresponding. Colossians is structured very similarly. Um, so he begins in Colossians 1, as he often does, with a section of thanksgiving and prayer for them. And I really love uh, some of the excerpts from this uh, he says in Colossians 1, verse 9, uh, And so from the day we heard, that is, heard of your faith, uh, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, these are just rich prayers to strengthen our prayer life. Uh, I, don't, I don't usually pray quite like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's very helpful to see that even though he never met these people, he had been praying fervently for them. And you see the content of his prayers is, again, largely centered on spiritual growth and not just on hope they're safe on their travels, hope they get well soon. Again, not wrong to pray for those things. But uh, Paul's prayers definitely call us to kind of elevate and have a spiritual focus as we pray for one another. Yes, and so may that shape our prayers. And it's really cool to see these little prayers that Paul includes in his different epistles, and they can help us in our prayer life as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And so Paul, after this, he he goes into some more detail on who exactly Jesus is. And the lead-in is really good in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of, of the saints in light. And that kind of launches him into this next thing in verse 13. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So uh, Paul, again, we're noting the differences between Ephesians and Colossians. In this section, begins by telling us the, the greatness of Jesus Christ and what sets him apart from everything else. And 
there's a reason why Paul needs to start here with these brethren, as, as he is soon in chapter 2 going to have to address uh, some of their temptations to fall into the false teaching of Judaizing, as we t- have talked about in previous episodes. We need to start with who Jesus is and the kind of authority that he has. And what Paul is really getting at in this section is that, that Jesus' is deity, uh, he, he has the say in all things. He was there from the very beginning. Um, and I see here in the notes, Stephen, uh, you have that this is a hymn to Christ. What kind of leads you to, to think about that that way? Yeah, this is one of the sections of the New Testament that, again, there's speculation about how this would have worked, but Paul may be either writing or quoting from an early Christian hymn in this section, in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. And some people try to like look at the meter of it and like how it would have fit into poetry and things. But there are some Bibles that... Again, put this in like that poetic, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, kind of the poetic form uh, on the page where it's got lines of formatting. poetry, of formatting. Thank you. So it's cool to think about our early brethren singing this hymn about Christ and who he is. Uh, he's the firstborn from the dead, which the implication there is God raised him first. But he's going to raise the rest of his brothers right. uh, at the last day. So it's really cool. Just There's so much to meditate on in this section. But uh, again, like you mentioned, the fullness of the deity of Jesus is one of the things that really comes out in the letter to the Colossians that isn't discussed maybe as frequently in some of the other letters. Uh, but Paul is really probably confronting some false teaching having to do with who Jesus really is. And so uh, this him to Christ in chapter 1 really sets us up and lays a good foundation for the teaching about that Jesus is in fact fully God. Yeah. And so very similar to what Paul does in Ephesians 2, you see in Colossians 2, uh, 1.21, he points out where they were, but then where they are in Christ. You, you were formerly alienated. Is that what the ESV says there in verse 21 yes. as well? Hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Th- this is what you were before Jesus Christ. It was awful. You, you were lost. You were in darkness. But verse 22, he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast. Um, and so there has been this victory that comes through Jesus Christ. We can set aside sin and its follies and now through the death of Jesus uh, be presented before God as holy and blameless. And that's what Jesus has done for us. So this section gives way to Paul, like he does in Ephesians 3, talking about his role in the beginnings of the gospel as a a minister of the gospel and how he was sent to the Gentiles. So kind of the the last part of chapter 1, it spills really right into the first part of chapter 2, kind of, chapter 124 through chapter 2, verse 5, he talks about how he has been appointed for this, but also how he's suffering for this and how he's not ashamed of that. Um, He really wants to see the Gentiles, and of course everyone, uh, but in particular he sees his mission as being to the Gentiles. He wants to see them come to be mature in Christ. I really like verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1. Him we proclaim, that is Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, 
struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so this is a powerful thing to think about Paul struggling and putting his energy, his mental, physical, emotional, spiritual energy into the gospel. And this word struggle is kind of interesting because he'll repeat it again in chapter 2, verse 1, saying, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all who've not seen me face to face. He didn't know these brethren, but he struggled for them. And it's the same word that he's going to use in chapter 4, verse 12, when he talks about Epaphras, who may have been involved in the beginnings of the work there. He says, Epaphras is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So I think that's really cool to see the connection there of the encouragement to pray for spiritual maturity in these brethren. Paul loves them and wants to see them do well spiritually. One quick note, you notice that Paul has mentioned Laodicea here in chapter 2 and verse 1, and he'll mention them again in the letter. Laodicea and the church in Colossae were about less than 10 miles away from each other, and so they're kind of neighbor churches in a lot of ways, and uh, we'll talk more about them here in just a little bit, but it's noteworthy that that is one of the churches that gets a, a message from Jesus in the book of Revelation, um, mm-hmm. and so the Laodicean church is mentioned here. That's right. So really the, the rest of chapter 2 Starting in verse 6, he seems to be warning the Christians in Colossae about some false teaching that was going around. And it's a little bit tricky to pin down exactly what the false teaching was. There seem to be two big elements in it. In our podcast about Galatians, we talked about the Judaizing teachers or the Jew-making teachers that were teaching you cannot be a Christian unless you become a Jew first. Right. There seems to be almost certainly some elements of that false teaching that was going on at Colossae because of some of the things Paul talks about in this section. Uh, In verse 11, he brings up circumcision. He says, In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Um, He also talks about Jewish festivals a little bit later in verses 16 and 17. Mm -hmm. Uh, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink. That would be like the Jewish food laws. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those would be like the Jewish feast days and the Sabbath day. He says in verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Yeah, that's an interesting way to put that. What does he mean there by a substance? It's like the idea of a body casting a shadow. The shadow has the form of the body, but not the substance of it. The body is the fuller thing. And so he's saying all those things in the Old Testament, the the food and drink laws, the festivals, new moons and Sabbaths, those were just a shadow. And Jesus is the substance. Yes. He's the fullness of those things. Uh, I like the NIV's translation of this. It says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And mm-hmm. so you have the reality, the, the real thing that is casting the shadow that we see. And I think that's really cool. And what that should do for us is want to go back into the Old Testament and, and start to see those shadows and see how Jesus is the true fulfillment of those. And we read a section that was very similar to that um, in the book of Galatians, in Galatians 3. So mm-hmm. anyways, this is a, a really cool passage to zero in on if you're interested. Yes. So in the other 
parts of this section, and they're kind of interspersed, and this is why it's kind of hard to tell like, yeah. what's going on. It, there seems to be some warnings here about something that was known as Gnosticism, mm-hmm. or at least some precursors, some some uh, prequels, if you will, to a fullness of Gnosticism that would be uh, a big false teaching in the second century. Paul's writing here in the first century. But what's interesting about this, and this will be much further addressed in John's first letter, First John, that we'll talk about on a later episode. But if you, one of the big things there was dealing with the deity of Jesus and who exactly is Jesus and did he take on flesh. Um, and things like chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells yeah. bodily. Um, and that would have been, if, if they were being swayed by Gnosticism, that's a direct uh, contradiction to the Gnostic right. teaching that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. And it, Gnosticism not only had a, a awful view of Jesus and his resurrection, but it also kind of had a weird view about ourselves. It kind of made a separation between, how would you say, Stephen, like the flesh and the spirit. Right. That like the flesh is evil and spirit is good. Right. And so like your spirit's going to be doing the good things, but your flesh is going to give in to those bad things, and that's okay. Well, if you are in that thinking, now listen to what Paul says at the end of chapter 2 in verse 20. If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but of no value against fleshly indulgence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you can kind of hear the Gnostic teaching in those four verses we just read, and Paul is saying, no, no, no. That, that is not how this works. If you've died with Christ and been raised up with him, chapter 3, verse 1, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And chapter 3 is, is now the shift in the book to application. What, what does putting on this new self look like? Uh, it looks far different from what Gnosticism was teaching. And uh, there's a lot of things that we have to die to, our flesh has to die to, and things that we need to put on. Mm-hmm. That's right. So after contrasting this to the false teachings, this is going to be really similar to Ephesians 4 and 5, where he uses some of the same language to talk about putting off your old self, putting on the new self. He uses the language of resurrection throughout here. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so he continues in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. And so he just kind of goes through, walking on how they ought to live, how their life should look now that they're in Christ. Uh, Verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And you go on through the section. And it's amazing to see, again, that the Christian life is not just about the things you are saying no to. 
but it's about the better things that you are saying yes to. It's not just a set of rules about, I oh, you can't do this, can't do that. But no, look, you've been remade in the image of Christ. Live like Christ did. Take on these positive character attributes that Christ had and look more and more like him. I really love that idea in this section of, of being renewed to, to be like him. Yes, and so that is naturally going to affect how you treat one another and how the local body is going to look. Uh, you especially see that in verse uh, 13, bear with one another, forgive each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Uh, so many of Paul's messages, after he encourages individual application of his teaching, he will then talk about how that is going to impact the group as a whole and how they can uh, further their relationships together, which really leads into the, the rest of the book. In chapter 318, he begins by talking about the different uh, relationships that we have on this earth, starting first and foremost uh, with our relationship with our spouse, husbands and wives. Mm -hmm. And very similar to how he worded it in Ephesians, he will say, Wives, be subject, subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord, Husbands, love your wives. Same points Paul was making in Ephesians 5. Yeah, this section is significantly shorter in Colossians than it is in Ephesians. He goes into way more detail, especially to husbands, giving the analogy of Christ and the church and kind of connecting that with Genesis and other places. But here, it's the same three relationships in the same order, wives and husbands first, then children and parents, or fathers in particular, and then he spends a little more time on servants and masters and kind of an unfortunate chapter break. Chapter 4, verse 1 goes with the servants and masters discussion at the end of the chapter. But again, we see just the personal nature of the gospel. It comes barging right into our lives and says, here's how you need to act at home. Here's how you need to act with your kids. Here's how you need to act, you know, servant-master kind of relationships, which, of course, those are different now than they were then, but the same general principles apply at work or other places like that. But in all of these things, we see that Christians are to be a people of submission, a people who put others' needs before their own, and a people who look to Jesus for our leadership in that. He submitted to the Father. He shows us how to live in that role of putting other people before ourselves. And so these are really timeless principles that uh, Paul is putting forth for Christian households. And so as Paul moves into this final wave of admonition on a variety of things, he wants them to have a focus on prayer. And I love the word he uses in my translation, at least, devote yourselves to prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And that's a really cool idea, that, that prayer, like we talked about in Ephesians last week, is the stance of a soldier. Uh, that he is alert in it. He, watch and pray, uh, like Jesus said in the garden. And so Paul is calling on them to do the same thing uh, in verse 3 and 4. But going with that, he's also going to encourage them to consider how they talk to non-Christians. Um, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity your speech must always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. This lifestyle of being of Christian is not uh, just in and only with the community of believers. It's supposed to impact us outside of that, and we're supposed to be taking that message out to other people. And so 
it's kind of interesting to me. I, I like to make the point when I talk about evangelism that evangelism is a no-brainer to new Christians, and that's that's mostly true. In the New Testament, you hardly see a section where uh, there's an encouragement to the new Christians to to go out and spread the gospel message. But this is one of those places where Paul does, uh, and he says, you know, think about how you respond to non-Christians and and be ready for those opportunities when they present themselves. Mm-hmm. And so Paul comes to the end of the letter to the Christians in Colossae with a fairly large greetings section. And notably in here, uh, it seems like this is uh, sent at the same time as the letter to the Ephesians, um, and apparently the Philippians as well. Uh, He brings up Tychicus, just like he did in Ephesians 6.21. But notably, and this is where we get the connection with Philemon, in chapter 4, verse 9, as he's sending Tychicus, he says, and with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So Onesimus is going to be discussed further in just a minute in this letter that Paul apparently sends at the same time, the letter to Philemon, who was an individual in the church there at Colossae. And there was a situation he needed to work on. But I think that's that's kind of the connection point. Interesting to see that between these two letters. But he talks to several people there, I'm including Epaphras, who likely was there from early on. Um, but look here at the end. Um, actually, that was a little side note. Uh, Luke, the beloved physician, is in verse 14. This is the pl- one place in the New Testament that he's called the beloved physician. And so that's how we know he was a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yep. But look at verse 16. And when this letter has been read among you, that is at Colossae, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. This gives us a little window into how these letters were functioning in the New Testament. That they were originally sent to one congregation. He has Colossae in mind with these greetings. But the contents of the letter were not only to be shared with the Christians in Colossae. They were to be circulated over to the church in Laodicea as well. And that's the same thing that Laodicea will receive Um, later on a letter from John to the seven churches and that's going to be circulated as well among the Christians and so pretty early on they're they're recognizing this is scripture and this is not just the private property of you know the church in Ephesus or the church at Laodicea or the church in uh, Colossae but these are to be shared with all Christians and so let's make copies of these letters let's send them around and and make sure you read them so I think that's really cool to see um, the connection points here uh, to the Christians in Colossae, and how this letter was viewed early on. Yeah, exactly. And so this might be a good place to pivot over to the, the single-shot letter called Philemon. And uh, it's just one little chapter. Um, as soon as I get my Bible over here, I'll tell you exactly how many, flip right past it. <laughs> how many verses it is. Um, 25 verses. 25 verses. And this little letter is really cool. This one really is a letter you read and you're like, I really am reading someone else's mail. Like this is <laughs> yeah. this one, uh, but there are some really cool applications. And so, um, it starts off very similar to how Colossians starts off. Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy was a co-sender of the letter to Colossians as well. But it's to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, into the church in your house. Um, Archippus was actually mentioned at the end of Colossians. Colossians 4.17. That's exactly right. And uh, apparently he had some role of ministry with the congregation there because in Colossians 4.17, 
Paul ends the letter by saying, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Um, and so there's different speculation on who these folks are. Uh, Philemon and Aphia have been, uh, people have speculated that possibly they are husband and wife and Archippus, the, their son. Um, but regardless, these are workers in the congregation at Colossae. And one of the things that we learn in verse 2 is that the church is in their house. The, the congregation, it would look like, has been worshiping and meeting in and going in and out of uh, the property or house that Philemon owns. Mm-hmm. And so Philemon is kind of a unique little letter in that Paul is writing to Philemon with a very particular purpose. Um, he gives thanks for him in verses 4 through 7, uh, similar to how he does for letters to churches as well. He's thinking about him, remembering him in his prayers, uh, praying that he can grow spiritually. But starting in verse 8, he appeals to him specifically for Onesimus. Mm-hmm. And he says in verse 8, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. So one thing that's interesting here is, is we learn uh, about Onesimus that has Paul says, I've become his father in my imprisonment. The idea there, Paul uses this language in like 1 Corinthians 4, is that uh, he, he apparently baptized Onesimus. He taught him the gospel and you know gave him Jesus. And so that's comes kind of a father-son relationship with Onesimus. So I don't know how this happened, but Onesimus ended up where Paul was while Paul was in prison. Maybe they were in prison together. I don't know. But they... Uh, Onesimus becomes Paul's child in the gospel. Uh, He's converted. And we learn a little bit later, uh, down in verse um, 16, from 15 and 16, this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Mm -hmm. That this was apparently Philemon's servant, Onesimus. And now Onesimus has become a Christian with Paul, and Paul is sending him back to his former master, to Philemon, and he's wanting them to be reconciled. He's wanting them to fix whatever has been done wrong. Um, In verse 18, he'll say, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So kind of putting all these pieces together, People say, well, what apparently had happened here is Onesimus was Philemon's servant, and he wronged Philemon in some way and ran away, perhaps, ends up with Paul, (laughs) is converted, but now he has some things that he needs to go back and make right with his master Philemon. And so that's just really cool to think about the context of this little letter and how important it is to Paul that he's willing to let Onesimus go so that he can be reconciled. And two things I like to point out in this little letter. The first thing is is Paul has all the confidence in the world that Philemon's going to choose to do the right thing. I mean, that's really what verses 4 through 7 is all about. Paul says, 
you have always been really good at showing your love to your brethren. And Paul says, I find comfort and joy in the love that you, Philemon, are able to show. And that's why Paul, he comes in and he says, look, I could command you to do this. Paul has the authority as an apostle of Jesus to come in and say, you're going to let Onesimus go. I need him back over here. Send him to me. But as Stephen pointed out, uh, that's not how Paul goes about this. He appeals to love's sake uh, in verse 9. Uh, yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. That, that's what he wants to appeal to because he knows that Philemon will do it. He, he's so good at showing his love. Uh, the second thing that's kind of interesting to me, at least, about this letter it looks like Philemon was the one that, or excuse me, Onesimus was the one that delivered it. Um, and likely had the letter for the Colossians as well. And you can just imagine the the fear that Onesimus would have as he, he is approaching the farm or, you know, wherever it is, is there, that he's getting closer to the home of Philemon. And here he's been this runaway slave and, and Philemon sees Onesimus approaching and Onesimus goes, please, please, please just read this first <laughs> before before you react, before you do anything. And to hear that Onesimus has obeyed the gospel, I hope would excite Philemon. To hear that, that he can have him back more than just a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And we, we have got to understand that when someone becomes a Christian, our relationship with them changes in a lot of ways. Um, we should be treating people of, of all backgrounds right. Uh, the Good Samaritan makes that point in Luke, the 10th chapter. But especially to our brethren. We need to be treating them with the utmost respect and love and nurturing those relationships. And Paul has so much confidence that Philemon will do that with Onesimus. Yeah. And I love that really Paul is interceding for Onesimus in this letter. And he's doing for Onesimus what really Jesus does for us in interceding to the Father. And it's powerful to think about how Paul says there at the end in verse 18, if he's wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Yeah. Paul is really putting himself out there for Onesimus and trying to be a peacemaker in whatever ways that he can so that Onesimus and Philemon can work together in the gospel going forward as brothers, even though there's some, some bad things in their relationship in the past. That's what we see is the power of the gospel. It has the power to reconcile people who are formally mean to each other, cruel to each other, and there can be forgiveness in the gospel. People who used to be enemies can become co-workers in the work. And I think that's just really cool to see in this little letter uh, the kinds of relationship rebuilding that's done um, because now these two people, though they have different stations in life and it used to be at odds with each other, they are now brothers yep. through Jesus. And that's a powerful lesson for all of us. Yeah, amen. And so a couple of personal notes from Paul to Philemon here as he wraps up in verse 22. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. So reserve my room, Paul says. Mm -hmm. he, he's hoping, and this is one of those glimpses we see in where Paul looks like he's anticipating to get out of prison. Um, and so he's hoping to come and visit the church in Colossia. And in verse 23, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, um, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. These are all the same folks we saw at the end of the book of Colossians. And so verse 25, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul always sends grace uh, to those that he, he's writing to. And so it's, it's really a cool little letter uh, that's mm -hmm. fun to study. Yeah, and it goes so well with Colossians, because likely as Paul is writing these letters in prison, he sends 
both of these letters together uh, with Tychicus and Onesimus. And so they would go together to the church there in Colossae and then in particular uh, deliver a letter to Philemon yes. about Onesimus. But it's just cool to see that we have these things preserved for us over these thousands of years to get a window into the kinds of relationships that Paul had with these brethren in the first century and to instruct us. And this is what the gospel does for people. It should combat false teaching like they were dealing with the Colossae. It should affect us personally uh, like in the life of Philemon and our relationships with those who've wronged us. And um, we ought to be able to take these things and be transformed by them. And so uh, that's why we did this episode together with those two, just to see the, the strong connection. But um, we'll continue, like Chase said, uh, looking at some uh, personal letters in the week to come. Lord yeah, Lord. so Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll continue in Paul's personal letters, starting with Titus. Titus was an evangelist on an island called Crete. And so Lord willing, we'll take a look at what Paul says to him and about his ministry next week. If you're enjoying what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, leave us a rating or a review. If you'd like to study a book of the Bible with us, please reach out to us, 717-585-0949. Email us at capitalcitychristians at gmail.com or for more information about local studies or worship, check us out at capitalcitychristians.com. Thanks so much for listening.